0: Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. My name is Chuck Andaris. Thanks to all of you so far who've come to our farmer chats on Wednesdays. The next one is May 13th at 2 p.m. on social media and your farm business. We will also be hosting a farmer chat for this episode on May 20th at 2 p.m. Links to register are in the show notes. From a lot of the conversations I've had with farmers in the last two months, the pandemic is presenting the local food movement with an unprecedented opportunity. Maybe for the first time, the average person is seeing the frailties of a highly consolidated food system through empty supermarket shelves and shut down packing facilities. The pandemic is also further exposing racial disparities in health outcomes and food access. It is not clear yet whether the system is breaking or just bending. But it is certainly stressed. So what are some models for how we might make lasting change? And how do we make sure that the systems we are building are just? I talked with Dan Cornelius of the Intertribal Agriculture Council about food systems, the role seeds play in resilience and food sovereignty, cooperatives, and some examples from tribes
1: that are working. Let's get to it.
0: Yeah, how's it going, Dan?
1: It's going pretty good today.
0: Good. Good. So yeah, you, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. I'm Dan Cornelius. I work for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. I'm a member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, and I grow corn, some pumpkins, some other indigenous crops, harvest wild rice, and do a little bit of ranching as well.
0: Wow, that's great. Right around the Madison area there?
1: Um, yeah, I'm I'm based here. Um, I spend a few weeks or a couple of months or so out in Montana every year. So do more of ranching out there. Just, um, I rent land now, but I'm in the process of trying to buy a farm and would probably be expanding my cattle here if, um, if that happens.
0: Okay. That's great. So yeah, today's episode, we wanted to talk about food systems and Um, just to give you a little background about where I'm coming from. I live in Green Bay. I was born and raised here in Green Bay. And we have these two big meatpacking facilities. One of them, JBS, has had, uh, I think, like 250 cases out of their 800 workers. And, you know, people are seeing empty supermarket shelves. And so from what I've been hearing from a lot of farmers and, and other people who work in this field is that it feels like a a really big opportunity to build a more just food system in its place. So that's kind of the context of why I wanted to to talk to you about this. Because if there is an opportunity to build a new food system, we need we need to build it in a way that's equitable and just for everyone. And so I thought I'd invite you here to talk about that a bit.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think of of looking at looking at Indian agriculture, you know, and and really Looking at at the Intertribal Agriculture Council and the work that we call it IAC, the work that IAC has done over the years, we were formed in 1987, coming out of uh, congressional findings and report uh, 1986, and that was in response to a disaster declaration in the Great Plains that really impacted Native cattle producers severely, and. This finding that Congress had, uh, you know, this report that Congress had commissioned found that there's a lack of planning in Indian agriculture, a lack of of credit, lack of infrastructure. And out of that report came the formation of the Intertribal Agriculture Council in 1987. And so, over the past now almost 35 years, we've worked to address those issues. You know, credit being a huge one, um, access to conservation, funding, uh, extension support, education, outreach to our producers. But really one of the, the huge areas where there has been and still is a, a giant need is, uh, is for building more infrastructure. And you know, that infrastructure can be everything from you know community kitchens for small scale processing of, of jams and jellies and, and um, canning salsa and, and vegetables to uh, larger scale processing of, of animals. And, uh, you know, and then the infrastructure as well of looking really at the whole supply chain. And where we've got a, according to um, to National Indian Gaming Association for two thousand eighteen, we had a thirty three point seven billion dollar a year tribal gaming industry, and they don't publish the food service numbers. But I had done some background research, uh, and uh, UNLV's Center for Gaming Studies and the State of Nevada Gaming Commission have uh, they estimated for the big Vegas casinos twenty two percent of that revenue from those big casinos. Is food service, you know, so you correlate that with tribal casinos. That's seven point four billion dollars a year, and even if we if we say you know our tribal casinos are only doing half of that twenty two percent, eleven percent revenue food service. That's still a three point five billion dollars a year, which coincidentally is the same number, exact same number as total ag sales for Native American farmers ranchers from the 2010 USDA Ag Census. So, you know, so looking at that big picture, I mean, that, that's part of our overall economy. But then looking in at, at more in more detail at our tribal food economy, you know, we have so many federal nutrition dollars that are coming in right now. And what strategies can we put in place to capture more of those dollars? Because every dollar that we capture that's going to a local producer is going to cycle back through that economy you know, depending on the economy and where people are spending it, up to five to six times or more. And so that's where agriculture really, you know, is a vehicle to support greater overall economic development. And that's not just tribes, that's rural communities in general.
0: Right. So maybe if we we back up, maybe we can learn some lessons for how Indian agriculture worked Pre-colonization, um, and do you have any examples for how food systems worked on this continent before Europeans colonized it?
1: Yeah, well, I I think it's important to recognize that when the first Europeans stepped, you know, stepped foot on the shores here, you know, they most likely were were witnessing the aftermath of a pandemic unlike anything that we're seeing today. I mean, I know this is a this is a, a very difficult time. But I, I know a lot of studies have estimated that 90% of indigenous populations were wiped out by smallpox and, you know, and, and other uh, diseases that spread across Turtle Island across the continent, even before oftentimes settlers and, you know, and, and Europeans would have stepped foot on shores. So I think it's important to recognize that, that there was major disruption at that time. But if you look, uh, you know, you look historically a couple uh, for for my tribe for Oneida, a couple of, of the of the glimpses that you can get of what uh, of what historic agriculture looked like, in the American Revolution, which is a lot more. We could have a whole episode just on talking about uh, Native involvement with that. But George Washington sent General Sullivan through Haudenosaunee, Iroquois territory, and in, uh, in the American Revolution, and they spent over a month and a half destroying fields and you read the the journal articles from these soldiers and I mean and it's heartbreaking you know they're chopping down all of the crops and and burning them and it took them six weeks to do it and you know so fields as far as the eye can stretch you know that that's that was Native American agriculture historically um, similar thing here in in Wisconsin the first Europeans they they arrive and around, uh, you know, present-day Lake Winnebago, Ho Chunk fields, you know, same thing stretching as far as the eye could see. Uh, right now, um, at, at Menominee, the tribal college is leading excavations, and they're they're finding fields miles of miles long. You know, so a, a lot of the general public doesn't recognize the extent of Indian agriculture, and you know, even for a lot of our communities, a lot of that knowledge has been lost. And it's exciting to see you know, some of that recognition coming back because it helps to promote and support and getting more, more interest in getting back to growing and living off the land today. So, you know, so that's just a a bit of a perspective on native agriculture, but it, but it would have been a a lot different of much more of, uh, you know, of of polycultures uh, as people would, would refer to it of, you know, lots of different crops working together. And, um, you know, it's it's just it's really remarkable to think of of just the scale of production hundred and fifty years ago.
0: Right. And how was the how is the land managed on a landscape scale by tribes?
1: Well, I, I think it would vary by the tribe, but definitely I would say there was much more of a of a holistic approach at looking at the land. But but most tribes did have private property, most tribes did have camps where families would go to for sugar bush your family would have its own fields. you know if you read some of, of the historic sources, uh, Buffalo Bird Woman is an excellent example of, of Mandan Hidatsa. but each of the families had their own fields, but then if someone needed help, the community would get together and go and help that person who, who you know who is in need. So that was kind of the insurance policy of back in the day of, that the community would step up and, and help out. but you know really how the landscape was managed would have varied based on on what the landscape was and what the tribe was.
0: Yeah, I've, I've definitely been feeling the limits of my own worldview, of my own culture lately, just thinking about climate change and thinking about the pandemic and, and our food systems and how, how much I and my family can feel resilient because we grow some of our own food and things like that, but how much of that depends on the work of other people. And so our resilience is, is in our communities and not as individuals. Yeah. So that's one of my big worries about the pandemic in the United States is just how it's a problem that needs a collective solution. And a large chunk of the population's culture has taught us to think as individuals. So how does that flesh out today for you? And like the same idea of like communities helping each other out with your farming or even in just food access and food sovereignty?
1: well we've been having some different discussions and and our we actually have a group right now that's working on um, connecting and working with the tribal food distribution offices and um, you know and, and just making sure that that they have enough food if there are you know some of these different grant programs like the three billion food box program where you know we looked at it and you know it's, it's kind of limiting of how it's set up for a tribe individually to to participate or even for a national nonprofit, that you really need to have complete control in the supply chain, and just even the products there with fresh fruits and vegetables, dairy, and cooked chicken and pork are—it's kind of limiting. But part of the discussions that we're working to advance is how can we collectively be doing intertribal distribution, and you know, looking ahead too of if we really get to a point where there are severe food shortages of having more connections, infrastructure, and support in place to be able to address it. One of the other uh, big efforts that predates this COVID crisis is I've been a part of a group, the um, Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, that has been working over the past several years, and you know a lot of people have been working for a lot longer you know, to bring back a lot of our historic seeds, to, to steward, to care, to keep those seeds. And to get them out, you know, in particular to the communities from which they originated, and that's a it's a very powerful movement. Uh, my friend Rowan White has been coordinating that effort nationally, but you know, a lot of that work has happened here in the Upper Midwest and Great Lakes region of uh, tribes coming together. White Earth Land Recovery Project um, was that page up there was one of the leaders too of helping to get workshops going. And just to see, just even in the last five years, just the the number of historic seeds that is now more available to tribal community members, it's um it's really exciting. And you know there are some issues there of where um, I get a lot of requests for people who want who want these seeds, and my general response is that they need to talk to the community of where those seeds originated, and it's not up to me to decide of who to share them with, but it really is, you know, who were the original growers? Who are those communities that were, where they originated from? And there's just such a a charged history of, of, of seeds being really, I would consider outright stolen from native communities and, you know, used to develop a lot of, you know, the modern corn that we have today, uh, you know, through different, different means. And none of those profits or recognition going back to, our native communities. But the on the exciting note, to see the seeds going back, Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and the, and the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, where where it sits, where it's a part of, is uh, has been working on a big seed drive over the past few weeks. I know I'm shipping some some seeds out myself. And I know really every, all the seed companies have been inundated in the past few weeks of a huge number of, of people across the country see the importance of growing Food, whether it's just a garden in their backyard or, you know, the importance of just being able to eat and have good quality food. So you have a run on seeds. And within a lot of our tribal communities, there's definitely similar sentiments. So a lot of our efforts now are just trying to help to provide support to get good seeds out to people, in addition to the longer lasting, um, you know, deeper work of uh, supporting indigenous seeds and in seed keeping
0: in like a Western viewpoint, seeds are often just viewed as another commodity to be traded. So that seems like a really different point of view about it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, but it, it is, there's definitely a struggle of there's, uh, I feel like for, you know, especially for the organic uh, grower community uh, versus, you know, versus native communities in general, there are some differences of where um, I feel like, you know, I mean, even with, you um, I'm, you know, friends with some of the folks who have started the open source seed initiative and, and where there's kind of a principle that seeds should be, you know, that you should be able to share and access any seed. And within native communities, that's not necessarily the same principle of, you know, I think partially because of some of that history that, you know, seeds are not necessarily something that you can just go and get, you know, any seed and, And I know a lot of our folks have a hard time when they see some of the seed companies that have, through whatever means, obtained some of these seeds, grow them out, and then they're selling these seeds. And they haven't even asked the community from which those seeds came from if that's okay to do. And there have been multiple instances of where Native community members have approached those seed companies and have asked them to stop selling those seeds, and those requests have been disregarded. You know, so that's part of the challenges that, that we face. But there's also some difference in perspective of that, and within tribal communities, oftentimes knowledge is knowledge is a is a privilege. You know, it's it's same thing with the seeds that there's not a universal right to have access to any seed you want or any knowledge that you want. That there are protocols that go along with it and responsibilities and you know, responsibilities that go along with caring for. That knowledge or caring for those seeds, and so that is one message I think that is important for um, you know for some of you know for the general organic growing community to understand is that it's not necessarily that people you know native growers don't want to work with you. I think that there's tons of opportunities for collaborations, but it's really looking at you know developing partnerships and understanding that you know that sometimes people are going to be coming from you know from different perspectives and to just recognize that going in
0: yeah and within the context of our shared history and also within the context of of relationships that take time to build i think
1: yeah definitely
0: so what do you what do you think COVID-19 is showing us about the food system
1: i think that COVID-19 is is highlighting some of the vulnerabilities in our food system where we have, you know, the modern industrial food system has, um, it relies on efficiency in terms of production and scale of production. And um, not everybody agrees with, I don't agree with with everything how it's done, but it is a very efficient system that produces a lot of bushels of corn and soybeans and a lot of pounds of meat. And it, it does it in a, in a very large scale. But there are vulnerabilities within that system that are being highlighted right now. When you have, you know, when you can have one plant go down, that's providing 5% of the supply of a particular product for the entire country. You know, that's a, that's a substantial interruption and a substantial challenge. And a lot of those of those manufacturing and production efficiencies can become liabilities as well. So, you know, I, I look at it of, you know, from the perspective of the work that we're trying to do to bring more value-added production to our tribal communities, you know, this right here highlights of um, when you're when you got a cattle ranchers that are looking at a prospect of selling five hundred dollar calves in the fall. What's your alternative? And if you don't have that processing capacity locally, and then where you do have local or re- smaller scale local re- and regional processors, they're booked up it's hard to even get an appointment in you know so it's highlighting that lack of infrastructure that i was talking about earlier the lack of infrastructure within our tribal communities for for food processing i mean these are vulnerabilities across the entire national and global food system so you know i think from a resiliency perspective that to increase the resiliency of you know not just for the tribal food system but our broader national food system having more capacity locally and regionally is going to result in a more resilient food system and i feel it's going to help to bring more dollars back to producers directly.
0: Yeah, so what are some of the models that you are working with or have seen work in other places to build some of that infrastructure for people who often don't have access to credit?
1: Well, yeah, you know credit credit is a is a is a big one. Intertribal Ag Council has formed a, a CDFI, a community development financial institution, to help to address some of, of, of that credit issue. And we also work closely with USDA's Farm Service Agency, but but even there, there's oftentimes gaps, which, you know, so the CDFI can help to address some of those credit issues, but you know, having enough resources to capitalize the the full need that that's out there is uh is difficult because that need is huge. But a model for, for processing that I would point to, a tribal model, is um, is the Quapaw Nation down in northern Oklahoma. I really view them as some of, uh, of the trailblazers and leaders. Their tribe had, had recognized the need for building more of this resiliency. And, you know, some of it comes to they're on one of the largest Superfund sites, if not maybe the largest Superfund site in the whole country with, um, with mineral mining that happened there over the decades. And so the tribe ha- has worked hard to reclaim and, and restore that land. And I think part of that history is what led them to then recognize that they need to also do more to build that resilient food system. So they opened up a livestock finishing and processing facility a couple of years ago, and um, they're doing buffalo, cattle. I know that they're putting hogs through Intertribal Ag Council actually just purchased uh, a coordinated uh, purchase and shipment of a truckload or even a couple truckload of, of hogs from the Dakotas down to Quapaw, because uh, the animals were, were going to be euthanized otherwise. You know? And so Quapaw is an example of a tribe that has directly built that processing facility and capacity. And even before the crisis, it's not just benefiting Quapaw; it's benefiting other tribes of other producers have been bringing animals in. and um, you know, it's a, it's not a small facility, but it's not, not nearly the size of these, um, you know, of these giant processing, industrial processing facilities, but, it, you know, they can put quite a few animals through there fairly efficiently. And, um, you know, that's, that's the type of resource and the type of model that we've looked at that would be nice to have in other native communities and other regions. And, you know, again, beyond tribes, it'd be nice to have more of that capacity across the whole country in our rural areas.
0: Um, and you do some some work in cooperative development yourself, right?
1: Yep. Um, you know, and again, right now it's it's highlighting the need for um, for more of cooperative strategies, for more coordination across the supply chain, more support from a production standpoint. Of when myself included, you may only need a certain piece of of equipment for a few hours throughout the whole year, and so you know what strategies can be put in place, you know, to help to share whether it be equipment whether it helped to connect producers and processors and then you know how do we build those connections across the supply chain to be able to get more product from our producers to the processors to ultimately to consumers plates and there've uh, been been some successes there but still a lot of work left to go and this current crisis really highlights the need for that capacity and you know, again, back to building that resiliency.
0: Yeah, maybe we can wrap up by just, if I can ask you, how can non-native people and farmers especially help work alongside native people to create more just food systems?
1: Well, I think that, you know, one of the strategies of where there's there's opportunities for partnership between non-native growers and, and native communities is, um, you know, it's just first just building a dialogue, building a relationship. And, um, you know, I, I know that a lot of the tribes that I'm working with, and we had some different plans for bringing equipment up and doing some demos. And we're kind of built, trying to build that capacity. And one of the first things I always say to folks is go introduce yourself and make a a connection and build a relationship with your local farmers, because they're the ones that are going to have the, you know, know the local conditions and oftentimes are going to have, you know, that equipment and that capacity, if you need help with something, you need a bigger piece of equipment, someone out there is probably going to have it. So that's some of, of the recommendations that I give to to tribal growers and communities that I work with. And, you know, and then so from the perspective of a non-native growers, if you have an interest in, you know, providing some support, you know, taking the time and, you know, and, and making some of those connections. If you want any help with doing it, you know, feel free to contact me with Tribal Ag Council, or if, you know, growers are in other regions outside of Great Lakes, we can get you connected with, with our staff, because cause there really are a lot of opportunities for partnership. And um, you, you give a hand to, to someone, you never know of, you know, of, of what's going to come back, you know, to help to benefit you down the line. And, you know, that's just part of having of having those partnerships is that, you know, is that in the end, everyone oftentimes is, is better off. So I would think that that's really one of, uh, one of the big areas. You know, another thing, if, um, if growers ever have surpluses of, of particular products, um, you know, we do, have, we do have tribal food distribution offices, and a lot of them do take donations. So that, that would just be another area. You know, I think that there probably could be quite a few others as well, maybe even some opportunities for, uh, you know, for more sales to casinos at some point in the future when they reopen. So, you know, just having those partnerships and, you know, working together locally and regionally, you know, dealing with a lot of these issues of the disruptions to our food system and to the supply chains. I think having those relationships, being able to work cooperatively together with one another, And really for small growers to be, you know, small to medium-sized growers to be able to be partnering together. there's, There's a lot of opportunity and oftentimes tribes, you know, typically tribes are the largest employers in their local areas. So, you know, so these partnerships can really, you know, be beneficial to the entire broader community.
0: All right. Thank you very much for your time, Dan. I really appreciate it. No
1: problem. Have a good one.
0: Thanks again to Dan Cornelius from the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Dan said that if you wanna get in touch with him, you can email him at dan at indianag.org. Thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. Resources from Moses include the Organic Broadcaster newspaper, and the guidebook for organic certification. Call the organic answer line to ask a specialist about organic farming and certification questions at 888-90-MOSES, or visit mosesorganic.org slash ask. Our show is sponsored by Gemplers, a family-owned online farm and home store, providing farmers with commercial grade tools, equipment, and supplies for the toughest outdoor tasks. For a 20% discount, enter code GEMORG04 at checkout expires May 15th, 2020. Exclusions apply. Gemplers.com. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. If you have a minute, please rate and review our show in your podcast app. It helps people find the show. Thanks again for listening.